Check it out, Startup Nation. I know many of you are trying to improve your marketing performance, right? You have your business or your e-commerce store, and you're trying to increase that brand awareness. No worries. I got you. You should listen to the brand new Keep Optimizing podcast. That's optimizing with an S and not a Z. It's a marketing podcast that will provide you with not only the latest tips and advice in the game, but also you will hear from experts in their field when it comes to email marketing, SEO, and more. This is a must-listen-to podcast for my e-commerce entrepreneurs. It's hosted by Chloe Thomas, who is a 15-year marketing expert, best-selling author, and award-winning podcast host. It's already a top-20 marketing podcast in seven countries, so clearly you're going to get amazing value every episode. So as you can see, Stoutermation, you're in good hands with my girl, CT. So listen and subscribe to the Keep Optimizing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to get your favorite podcast. You can also get more information at keepoptimizing.com. The link is there in the show notes. It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, so I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, when starting a company, your goal is to create something unique that your customers will enjoy. And if you're able to keep the doors open for, say, five to ten years, many will consider you quite the success. But what does it take to build one of the best businesses and brands in American history? Well, Startup Nation, our guest today may know a little something about that. He is the former longtime CEO of Dunkin' Donuts in 1963, 13 years after his first restaurant was founded by his father, William. In his remarkable 35-year run, he grew the company from $10 million in sales to over $2 billion with more than 3,000 outlets. He's also taught at the Graduate School of Babson College, where he served many years on the boards of directors of other leading food service companies, including Domino's Pizza and Sonic Restaurants. He is the author of Around the Corner to Around the World, a dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin' Donuts. He is Robert Rosenberg. Uncle Bob, how are you? Good, sir. I'm terrific. Thanks. No worries. No worries. So, you know, let's just hop right into it. I just want to say thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. So, you know, I I know you you retired from Dunkin Donuts in 1998. uh, And now you have this memoir, you know, uh, was there any reason why you didn't write it maybe around 99, 2000? Why now? Well, for the first 35 years, I was busy running the business. Of course. And and my second career, I basically started again. I became an adjunct professor and uh, served on boards of directors of different companies. So I had a second career. Gotcha. And a- as an adjunct professor in the graduate school at Babson, it also gave me an opportunity to be able to look back on the 35 years and sort of refine what I had learned and determine whether or not there was value there for other people who may be uh, starting a business or growing a business. And other people told me there might be. And I decided to sit down and and try to codify what I had learned over those years, put it all together in a memoir that uh, would tell the tale of the the business and all the people who built it, all uh, the successes and quite truthfully, the setbacks, which were critically important. Right. Uh, So it might be of some value to people. So here we are now in my sort of third career. And it seemed appropriate that this would be one of the big top things on my agenda. For this part of my third career, which was to basically um, put it all down and convey it, hopefully, and find value for others who might be 
uh, interested in growing a business. Absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing that. We, we find that a lot of uh, CEOs, they, they want to take that time to kind of reflect and, and stuff like that and kind of crystallize, you know, what they've learned. So I, I appreciate you sharing. I definitely appreciate uh, that, pro- that, uh, that a vantage point for sure. And, you know, and in talking about the book and once again, startup nation, that book is actually out today. We have a link there in the show notes for easy access. If you listen to the replay uh, on the podcast uh, to purchase that book. Uh, and in speaking about the book and each of the, the, the chapters in there, you, you talk about the four lenses uh, and you're talking about strategy, organization, communication, and crisis management. Why was that important to put that uh, those lenses in the book. Well, in the 35 years, I broke it down into six distinct eras, each right. roughly about five years. And the the, the problems, uh, the competition, the consumer are constantly changing. So there was a new set of issues requiring a different kind of response. Mm-hmm. And after a number of years, I had first five years, just briefly, <laughs> right. let me set the stage, sure. were a lot of, very successful. The next five years were not as successful at all. I lost my way right. and almost led the company over a cliff. Um, real serious. And we began to learn uh, from that lesson, me in particular, about what to do and what not to do. And as I did that, what came into focus was there were certain activities that if you didn't get those spot on, if you mm-hmm. didn't get them exactly right, right, almost nothing else worked. And every day there are literally hundreds of issues coming at you over the transom. Right. And if you don't set aside, in my opinion, the time to get the strategy right, what you want to be, what you want to achieve goals, and the four or five critical levers you're going to pull, plus getting the organization right in order to be able to execute that strategy. If you don't get those two things spot on right, almost nothing else you can do will make a difference in terms of getting you to where you want to be. Right. So those were the first two. And then the third I found as I went along was that you had to mobilize a lot of constituents behind the vision and the mission. You had to get everybody aligned, whether it be a board, whether it be uh, franchise owners, whether it be staff members, and that required you to be communicator in chief. And then lo and behold, as we went along, crises occurred. Uh, the world is stochastic. Lots of stuff happens out of the blue, some of which can threaten the very survival of the business. That requires the immediate and total attention of a small team of people that are capable of solving the problem and dealing with it, while the rest of the organization runs the business. And almost always, when it's that existential kind of threat, right. requires the full attention of the CEO as part of that team to solve that problem. Sure. So as a result, I distilled down all the thousands of things that come in over the transit right. down to those four activities. If I could get those right, I thought I would be doing my job uh, as a leader. And uh, th- that's where I came out at the end of all that time. I hear that. And I appreciate you sharing that. And we're, we're definitely going to dive into uh, those eras or those chapters uh, in the book. But you said something just now. I, I want to kind of uh, hear a little bit more about, if you don't mind, uh, Robert, you talked about being, you know, as the CEO, being that communicator in chief. What does that look like? What does that sound like, in your opinion? It basically requires, um, I think, two things that are essential, maybe okay. three. OK, uh, the first is you have to be authentic. You have to be absolutely truthful. Uh, and in the book, I, I actually outline uh, the. F- you got that? Yeah, <laughs> the four and five. My apologies. Go ahead. That's <laughs> okay. In the book, I outline uh, the elements I think that are essential to be able to know that you yourself are 
are being truthful and whether or not and how you can evaluate truthfulness in others. It's basically sincerity, competence, care, and, and, and reliance and reliability. Mm. And, and so the, fir- the first element is you have to be uh, truthful and authentic. Everybody in an organization, especially in time of crisis, looks to the leader. And people are very perceptive. They can tell if you really think you have it and you are leading in the right direction. They can tell by your body language, by your facial expressions, by your tone. Right. People are evaluating all the time what you're saying and how you say it. So, so that's one element. The second element that's, that's critically important, I think, is care. When, you, when you're addressing your audience, you really should have a real clear understanding of their concerns, what's on their mind, what is it that, what is it that, that, that they want to hear about. So if in times of a crisis, you know, that threatens people's livelihood, that threatens the very way they live, Absolutely. whether they be a franchise owner or a staff member. And so they really want to know how you're addressing issues that really relate to them and in their lives. And the last thing I would say that you have to get down right in, in terms of communication which is the tricky part, because generally we think that when we say something once or twice, that it's heard, it's listened to. People really get the other end of the communication. But I'm here to tell you that isn't my experience. Gotcha. My experience is that people are you know, leading busy lives. They have issues at home. They have issues with family. They have all kinds of things. And, and, and oftentimes it takes very much hands-on. We used to go into the field and ride with our district managers, visit 100 stores a year. Uh, to talk directly to franchise owners, people on the front lines, and listen carefully, listen to their concerns, uh, listen to issues that that concern them. And you have to communicate your mission, your values, uh, the objectives that you want to achieve, the strategic levers you're going to pull over and over and over again. And and sometimes it takes three, sometimes it takes 10, but it takes a lot of time in order to get everybody aligned. And you have to listen to feedback and ask people to repeat it back in terms of, do you agree? Does that make sense? So right. communication is a continuing and important activity. And, and that's one of the main jobs of all, lead, all people in management, whether they're running a department or whether they're running a company. They have to ensure that everybody is singing off the same song sheet and aligned. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And Startup Nation, that's why I wanted to ask that follow-up question. I just think that communication piece is just so critical. Even as the leader, you, you still have to have that, like you just said, Robert, you know, it's, it's the constant, uh, er, ever, you know, going thing. So I appreciate you sharing that insight. My pleasure. No worries. No worries. So uh, let's kind of dive into the book a little bit. You know, you know, kind of walk me through that 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 day in June 1963 where you're having probably your dad's giving this sales pitch to you about the company. Kind of walk me through that. Uh, What was your emotion like? What was your thought process when he's talking to you about the company? Breathtaking. It took my breath away. I bet. (laughs) I mean, here you have. I mean, I was a. A kid who grew up sort of um, figuratively over the store. I had worked in the business, the family business. I went to hotel school. I went to the army. Right. Then I went back to graduate school. So I knew I was going to be joining the family business, but I had no idea in what capacity. I never expected that my dad, who was only 47 years old, he's a, he was a drop, an eighth grade dropout out of school, right. would turn to me and ask me, if I wouldn't take over his business, which was not called Dunkin' Donuts. It was called Universal Food Systems. Exactly. My dad had seven or eight disparate little businesses. And uh, in my view, uh, something while I was in school, I was able to sort of get a hunch in terms of why profits weren't growing, why 
our competitor, Mr. Donut, was overtaking us mm-hmm. in the donut category. And and uh, but I, I never expected to get to get the nod. And and so what did I feel? I felt a combination, I would say, of uh, of uh, elation, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, the opportunity to get a chance. Remember, I was a cocky twenty-five year old, gotcha. fresh out of business school. Right. But some anxiety, and uh, an old saying I have is, you, you, you know, it's hard to put a an old head on a young body. Lucky I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And I decided that the opportunity and my ability to be able to straighten out the, the problem, keep the company from being sold, and uh, and and uh, beating back the family competitor, Mister Donut. Uh, right. And I can go into that story later for sure. Uh, and I thought I saw a way to do that. I, I thought I saw a real clear path to fix the problems that beset the business at that time and why my dad was trying to sell the business to somebody else and why he was having so much trouble and frustration. I wanted to please my dad as well mm. to fix the problem. So so I it was the best decision I could have ever made as it turned out. But it was it was hair raising. <laughs> a, a, bit, a bit. No, no. I, I'm curious about something, though, because you talked about that anxiety piece. Was that because of, of uh, not only the surprise of it and all, but was it because being a young leader? Because I'm curious about, you know, how that went over well with people that was already, you know, in the company as well. Because, you know, you, you, you come fresh out of business school. Like you said, you're this young leader. You're 25 years old. Uh, did you have any hurdles to overcome as being a young leader of a company like that? I did. The first decision I was faced with is actually my dad trying to straighten out his business problems and turn mm. to an executive vice president to run the company. And he was actually running the day-to-day business of the company and was not solving the problems. He was more of a tactician. He was from Montgomery Ward, a large um, hard goods uh, retailer uh, across the country in the early, uh, the last 30 years. And he had come out of that business and he was running the business. So my first first challenge was I couldn't have, in my view, an executive vice president standing between myself and my staff. Right. Second anxiety is, would they follow a 25-year-old? And the third anxiety related to my own anxiety about if I were to fail, who in the hell would right. <laughs> employ you know, a <laughs> failed CEO? Right. You know, could I start at an entry-level job? Right. And uh, luckily, I didn't have to face that alternative, but, but that was what was running through my mind at the time. Got you. Gotcha. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, and speaking of alternatives, I know, you know, uh, you know, you, you would accompany your dad to certain trips to New York when he was thinking about selling the company and stuff like that. And he ultimately did. I'm curious about something, though. What if he actually did sell uh, the company at that time? What do you think you would have been doing instead of running the company? Like what you know, What was the plan before that? Yeah, I, I really didn't have a, a, a real clear plan in gotcha. terms of if the, if the company was sold. I, okay. I did. I did run a lot of restaurants. Gotcha. I knew that industry well. I mean, I knew my trade. And uh, I thought I probably would join some company in the restaurant industry. Gotcha. And, and, uh, but, but luckily, I didn't have to face that, that Absolutely. choice. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned earlier that it was not called Dunkin' Donuts uh, before. But uh, in the book, you talk about that a famous comedian at the time may have had a hand in kind of naming the company. Can you share that story with us? Which, uh, and my Universal Food Systems or, or how Dunkin' Donuts came to pass? Or how, how Dunkin' Donuts, the name, came to pass. I'm sorry. Oh, I, yeah. I, I, lo- I love to tell that story. Sure, please. It, 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 it's, it's a story about in my view, chance, and mm. uh, not only chance, but second and third chances. And that's what it took in this case 
to get the concept rolling. Right. My father and my uncle were in the industrial feeding business. They had these trucks, meals on wheels that went around to uh, construction sites and, and office sites and small factories where people would come outside and get coffee and, and sandwiches and off a truck, you know, where the sides would open up and coffee would be in five gallon urns and sold that way. And as in my view, vending machines started to play a more active role in that business toward the middle of the late, late 1940s after the war. That business was running into trouble. It had a commissary and all. And and the guy that was making bakery goods in the commissary had worked at a donut shop down the street. And he said casually, look, at you guys diversifying, you should take a look at Puritan Donut on Marcy Boulevard, which was a stone's throw away. Gotcha. He said, you know, they have 20 trucks that go around and deliver wholesale donuts, but they make more money out of one retail uh, donut shop. Uh, than they do out of all the trucks that go around. And so that struck a resonant note with the two partners. And as a result of that, um, they decided that they would uh, open a store and uh, sell donuts and coffee. And, and they sold that uh, off the trucks, and they thought they would sell that in a retail store. Hopefully that would be the right diversification move. So in 1948, they took a, for $75 a month, a little stucco store, uh, an, a former awning shop, and they opened a business called Open Kettle. And lo right. and behold, uh, it, it was no different than the other 1,500 donut shops that were open in the state of Massachusetts at the time. And that's not a lot of business, and it wasn't a, 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 a real success. Right. And here's where the role of chance comes in. Lo and behold, not only were they, things bad, and they couldn't diversify the business, it wasn't the panacea they were looking for. Right. They found out the guy across the street was going to add on to his lot and open another donut shop. Mm-hmm. And they found out quickly who the architect was going to be. He had yet to hire him, the competitor. And so they hired this guy, Bernard Healy, who was the architect in town. And he came along and he looked at the this awning shop, all stuccoed over with a little window. And he said, you know, you guys aren't doing yourself a favor by, by closing yourself up like this. And the name Open Kettle doesn't mean anything. Right. So they what they did in order to beat the competitor across the street to the punch, they ripped the store down. They built this fishbowl. Uh, store, very California style uh, design, uh, very contemporary, could look into the kitchen and watch donuts being made, a question mark counter with 20 stools sat, big, uh, beautiful uh, cabinets that, that displayed all of the donut products that they had. They started with 28, soon to be 52 varieties. Right. And and here was the role of chance. So, and they were sitting around, they, they were talking about, now, what do you do? How We should name it. You know, what do you do? You pluck a chicken. And what do you do to a donut? And the name is, well, you dunk a donut because Red Skelton, who was a famous comedian on television those days, right. well, that was one of his comedic bits was the etiquette of dunking. And my father said, well, that's it. That's that's the name. So a $1,500 a week open kettle closed. And within a year, a uh, brand new spanking new California style Dunkin' Donut opened up at $5,500 a week with coffee at a dime and the dozen donuts at 55 cents. And Absolutely. it was an overwhelming success. Uh, uh, $5,500 a week, uh, you know, more than triple the business. And that was the, the beginning uh, of an empire. Right. Unfortunately, the partners didn't get along. And <laughs> after five stores, uh, they broke the partnership up. Gotcha. And what did my uncle do? My uncle took the money from the his portion of, of the business, $350,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. And he started a competitive donut chain called Mr. Donut. Wow. And that began the donut wars that drove us over the next five years. Wow. That's... It was... It was a behind-the-scenes emotional register 
it drove our activities almost constantly. I imagine, man, like that, that's, that's kind of crazy. That's, that's something that is like ripe for a movie or something, right? Like, you know, the uncle kind of goes and does that. That's crazy. And it's real life. And, you know, you look behind a lot of scenes in, in life and you'll also find that a lot of what the energy that drives things that grow and do well, including politics, That's true. are very emotional, are very practical, very personal issues. Right. As you sort of go behind the scenes. That's it's, true. It's real life. That's very true. Very true. Thank you uh, for sharing that. And, and I'm familiar with Red Skeleton because I am a, a big fan of I, of Lucille Ball. Uh, and I know yep. I used to he used to kind of kind of be in cahoots a, a lot of times and stuff like that, you know, and, and playing in different roles together and stuff like that. So I appreciate you sharing that uh, for sure. And so it, it just goes to show it's just crazy how things that simple can really turn things around to kind of change the brand a little bit. So I appreciate that that insight. So it, it's, it's the sixties, you're kind of rolling and stuff like that. And after a while, maybe late sixties, early seventies, things kind of take a turn uh, for the not so good. Kind of share that if you don't mind. Yeah. Basically uh, when I came out of business school, uh, I had basically decided that the, that the business was, was really faltering because of indigestion, too many businesses, pancake houses, hamburger stands, mm. um, vending machine company, a cafeteria company, uh, part ownership in a pizza place, a delicatessen. So basically, we decided to focus on a coffee and donut shop and to focus our growth and development on a standardized menu and, and specific markets to build brand and to build value. Right. And that worked extraordinarily well. The first five years from 68 to 73, um, from, I'm sorry, from 63 to 68 mm-hmm. were, were really magical. Our earnings have went from $100,000 pre-tax all the way up to $750,000. We were the third company to go public. I had to promise my dad, uh, rather than sell the company, we'd go public as soon as possible, equitize his 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 holdings. Um, and then, lo and behold, I lost my way. Uh, I right. basically thought we were growing at 50% compounded in earnings over that five-year time period. I got seduced by success mm. and by trying to keep up a stock price. And that was a mistake. And gotcha. I decided then uh, that we would be a franchising company. And if we could do this well with donuts and coffee, just imagine if we had other franchise businesses we were running as well. So my mission went from being a focused donut and coffee company for the company to being a franchise business, which really is a method of distribution. It's not a business. For sure. And it was a bad mistake. And over the next five years, things faltered. Franchisees were upset. Um, we lost our way. One of my closest friends and a business schoolist uh, colleague of mine who joined, who I recruited out of Goldman Sachs, left the company mm. because he, you know, he lost confidence in my leadership. It was a a, a terrible time, um, and as a result, uh, I went to a board meeting in '73, and the board, and we're now a publicly owned company, said we we've been watching you. We're sort of a little bit fed up. Uh, you, your earnings leveled off about three years ago, and now we we actually lost a million seven hundred thousand dollars last year. I think it's time for a change. Right. Well, luckily, before I walked into that board meeting, I had an opportunity. I got a sort of transformational moment about uh, what my role was and what I did wrong. And the management and the, the team that we had around me we rallied around. We fixed our problems. Uh, we saw the error of our ways. We apologized that we had begun to make steps to fix it. So by the time the board wanted to replace me. I basically said, give us another quarter. I think we solved the problem. I think we know what we did wrong. And I particularly know, and I take full responsibility for, for all these errors. And I think we're on the right track. And that, luckily I walked out of the room 
know, an hour or two went by sweating bullets. Right. <laughs> I walked back in. I walked back in. They said, okay, you know, we'll give you another quarter to try. And, and quite true, the lessons we learned, we never looked back again. Over the next four, five-year eras, the next 20-some odd years of the company's growth, uh, the lessons that we learned from that mistake in terms of how to focus, how not to get indigestion, uh, how to be able to balance exploitation with innovation, experimentation was something we had learned and we were able to keep in balance since that's sort of the art of management. And, and uh, But that that was a big learning experience, huge learning experience for me. I bet. I, I bet. Thank you for sharing that. There's two things I want to follow up and, and ask about that part, uh, that era if you will. The first thing is you talked about the phrase seduced by success, right? And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs fall victim to that all the time. I guess what I'm curious to know is what are what are some things to look for that you may that the CEO or entrepreneur may should look at? Or what are those signs that you may be uh, fall into that trap of being seduced by success? What does that look like? If you don't mind me asking. Maybe it would help if I were to go back and tell you the transformational moment. Sure. Absolutely. Woke, awoke me that, that opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. I was sitting and you know, all of this pain, all of this, I was disappointing so many people leading the company in the wrong direction, uh, having all this defection. I was reading a book by da- David Halberstam, a noted author called The Best and the Brightest. It was the Kennedy and Johnson's administration of the Vietnamese War. Gotcha. Uh, the government was run by uh, Ivy Leaguers, the best and the brightest the country had to offer. They were going into the town. They were not going into the towns and hamlets where the war was being fought. They were relying on data far away, body counts, things that really didn't deal with the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people. Right. And he said the problem that lay at the heart of that was what he called hubris, Mm. the Greek word for arrogance. And I said, oh, my God, he could just as well be talking about me. Right. And and we we caucused together and we decided right then and there that as leadership, we would never blame the followership. It wasn't going to be a 50-50. It was going to be 100-0. If things didn't work out, that was what we were paying to do is to fix the problems. We invited people in to help us fix it, particularly the franchisees. And that's when we decided to visit 100 stores a year, travel with district managers, get a feel for the front line. We would work one day a year in a store just to ensure that we also understood what the front line was dealing with, the people that greeted the customer, the last few feet of the sale, uh, all of which were critical changes that happened as a result of that. So the answer to your question is, what is it? Success, oftentimes, the past success is one of the greatest barriers to future success mm-hmm. because, especially in a young person like myself at the time, gotcha. you get to think you know it all. You, mm-hmm. you have to stay humble. Uh, you have to listen a lot and stay very humble. So if I had a message to give entrepreneurs is watch out for success, stay humble, do a lot of listening about from your teammates, from the customer, from your competition. And uh, don't get carried away with your own success. For sure. Six, famous fleeting. Mm, in Roman fleeting. times, in Roman times, when the generals came back and they rode into Rome from vanquishing uh, enemies far and wide, they'd be riding in their chariots, and someone would be ho- holding a, a a branch, an olive branch over their head, and whispering in their ear, "Remember, fame is fleeting. Fame is fleeting." Well, I would say the same thing is true in business. For it sure. can be fleeting if 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 you if you buy your own press. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. I think that's very important startup nation to kind of really take to heart and put that uh, in your entrepreneurial toolkit for sure. What you also should put uh, in your entrepreneurial toolkit startup nation is the book around the corner to around the world. A dozen lessons I learned running Dunkin Donuts. Once again, that book is available today. You can if you listen to the replay on the podcast, you can go ahead, click the link in the show notes uh, for easy access. I want to ask you about that, you know, that that board meeting uh, really quickly before we kind of transition a little bit. You know, if you know, what was it? that that board saw was it just your word that you know i can turn it around was it the past success were there a few indicators of things could be turned around i guess ultimately what i'm asking is what do you think in in your mind was the ultimate decision okay we're going to give you another quarter to figure this out i think in moments of crisis like that that authenticity is sort of the coin of the realm and and i to my very core believed and my team and our strategy mm-hmm. that we had uh, sold off the little businesses we were starting to franchise. Uh, we had cut back on our rate of growth to a manageable level. We had fixed the problems, and I believe we really did. So I think it was my authenticity, my core belief that we really had it nailed. And I was able, I think, to convey that. It's hard to do if you don't believe it to your core, as I said, people are perceptive. They can read it in your face and in your body language in terms of whether or not you really have it and you really believe in the, that you have a, a, an answer. And, and in our case, I think we thought, and I in particular thought, and I had absolute confidence in the team I had around me, the, my colleagues, that we really had this nailed. And I think that did carry the day. Uh. All right, Startup Nation. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson, and you're listening to The Startup Life. Check it out, Startup Nation. I know many of you are trying to improve your marketing performance, right? You have your business or your e-commerce store, and you're trying to increase that brand awareness. No worries. I got you. You should listen to the brand new Keep Optimizing podcast. That's optimizing with an S and not a Z. It's a marketing podcast that will provide you with not only the latest tips and advice in the game, but also you will hear from experts in their field when it comes to email marketing, SEO, and more. This is a must-listen-to podcast for my e-commerce entrepreneurs. It's hosted by Chloe Thomas, who is a 15-year marketing expert, best-selling author, and award-winning podcast host. It's already a top 20 marketing podcast in seven countries. So clearly you're going to get amazing value every episode. So as you can see, Style Nation, you're in good hands with my girl CT. So listen and subscribe to the Keep Optimizing podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you like to get your favorite podcast. You can also get more information at keepoptimizing.com. The link is there in the show notes. Oralex powers this episode of the Startup Life. Startup Nation, as a podcaster, radio host, and business owner, I know a thing or two about the need for your message to come through clearly to your target audience. The last thing you want when trying to close a big deal over the phone or giving a sales presentation in your conference room is to have the person you are talking to be distracted by either the fact that you sound like you're in a warehouse or an outside noise like a fire truck. Trust me, Startup Nation. I know this all too well from experience. And that is why Oralex has your back. Oralex Acoustics creates professionally tested products that you can trust in a commercial space or at home. 
Better office acoustics improves intelligibility when video conferencing or generic conversation reduces stress and helps build a proactive work atmosphere. From a home studio for my content creators to your office space downtown, your gear performs better in an acoustically treated room. Trust me, you are in good hands with Oralex as they are the number one brand in acoustics, providing trusted solutions for over 40 years. Also, you can download the Oralex Acoustic Treatment mobile app in the Apple or Google Play Store to give you specifically designed and instantaneous recommendations for various room types. Go to Oralex.com and use the promo code STARTUP in all caps for 10% off your entire order. The link is there in the show notes if you are listening to the replay on the podcast. So if you are ready to stop sounding like you're having a sales meeting in a sports arena, go with Oralex. Professional audio made simple. Tresta powers this episode of The Startup Life. Okay, Startup Nation, I want to talk to you about our sponsor, Tresta. Tresta is an app for iPhone and Android that lets you do business calling and texting from anywhere. I know so many entrepreneurs that are still using their, their personal phone number for business calls. It can get complicated drawing the line between your personal and professional life. Startup Nation, this is the best business phone app out there. Whether you just need a business phone number or if your team is ready for a complete business phone system, Tresta is totally flexible and can grow with your business. And it's all unlimited. Calling, texting, and all of the powerful call management features like auto attendance, call recording, user groups, and more for just $15 per user per month. With Tresta, there's no contract and you don't need any special hardware, just your smartphone you're already using. Tresta is easy to configure so you can set everything up yourself, all online avoiding all the hassle and high overhead costs of setting up a traditional business phone system, which is important because as entrepreneurs, we are always trying to cut cost and time. They're often a 30-day free trial so you can see if Tresta's virtual phone system is right for you. Communicate smarter and more efficiently with Tresta. Start now at Tresta.com forward slash Startup Life. That's T-R-E-S-T-A dot com forward slash Startup Life. The link is there in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast. Tresta, business communication simplified. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. You know, also talk about the importance of a board and, and how valuable it is to a company and its success. Uh, I, it's very important in my view. Right. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a formal board. I mean, you can even do this in a family if you're planning, gotcha. you know, what you want to have and what you want to be. What you need is something to, as a forum. And when you have an outside forum of, of people uh, that you like and you trust, um, that makes your game crisper. You have to be on your on your mark if you're going to present. So we would present our, our five-year plan and sort of our, our annual plan our table of organization to the board. And it was a sounding board. And it basically came as a result of what I call mission creep, the problems I ran into between 68 and 73 at the time I was right. So in order to ensure that that wouldn't happen again, I needed a board of advisors and a process and procedure to ensure that before um, that could happen, that the CEO, CEO me could do that again, He'd have to really run it by a board of people who have been brought along, who understand the business, who know what you want to have and achieve. And, and I think that was an important sounding board, um, both on individual tactical matters as well as strategic matters. Along the way, one of, one of the board members was, was my, my business school professor. And he, he said to me, you know, you, you, you're focusing all your time in the early, the first era of the company. 
on on Duncan. Maybe it's time for you to sell or close down those other businesses. Hmm. Well, I hadn't given them capital and I hadn't spent a lot of time at it. Basically, we're busy sort of polishing up the diamond in the rough that was in our care, which was Duncan known as the real ex- expandable business in our view. And, and, and that was enough of an impetus for, for us to decide to sell the other businesses totally. So by 1968, we went public as Dunkin' Donuts, not Universal Food Systems. Absolutely. And another time, uh, uh, Archie Southgate, who was a, uh, a lawyer in Boston for Ropes and Gray and ultimately became the managing partner of that very prestigious law firm, was another board member. And he said to me an innocent question. He said, what would happen if you slowed your rate of growth from 140 new stores down to 40? I said, oh, I can't do that. You know, it costs too much in earnings and we've already growing. And, you know, I've been committed to a, a course of action. And as a result, that kept haunting me, that question. You know, that's not a fair answer to Archie's question. And we developed a model uh, to be able to model our performance. And lo and behold, we found we could keep up a sustainable rate of growth in earnings per share and reduce the rate of growth, get our arms around the business, which is exactly what we did. And when I walked into that boardroom, I had already begun to fix that as a result of the model, as a result of the questions that these board members had already posed to me. Gotcha. And so I found it to be invaluable. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Startup Nation, throughout the book, you know, once again, uh, you know, it, the, the second part of the title is a dozen lessons I learned from running Dunkin' Donuts. And one of those lessons I thought was interesting was lesson nine, innovate, test and iterate. Kind of talk about that, that part, uh, Rob, because I think that's, that's super important. Well, as I say, in each five year era, and maybe even faster in today's world than it was even back then. Absolutely. The competition is is changing and morphing. Uh, the technology is changing and morphing. Uh, the, uh, the customer is changing. Uh, new offerings are coming on board. So an organization, in order to stay successful, in order to keep achieving its objectives, has to be agile. And in our case, what, me- what, what it meant to be agile was for us to do a lot of experimentation, to plant a lot of what someone called saplings right. along the way, some of which you water and would grow and perform well, and, and others wouldn't, and you'd have to you know, cut them down and get rid of them quickly. And that was our method of operation. We tried a lot of things, and we would test products, we would test promotion prices, we would test menu, we would test design, packaging, you name it, we tested it. And we were set up very much like a packaged goods company in terms of our marketing department. And that was how we operated. So we experimented a lot. We, we then would be very clear tests. We wouldn't ask franchise owners to take something on unless it was tested and it worked out. But we were years in advance of building the pipeline of all of these option alternatives to improve the business. We would test to see if they delivered a fair return to the franchisees or the right kind of return on our advertising investment. And if it worked out well, we'd iterate. In other words, we'd, we'd go like crazy and roll it out. If it didn't work, we'd cut it off quick and we'd move on to the next one. Gotcha. So that was just a way of, of thinking, the way we approached the world. Uh, sure. We thought of ourselves as very agile, and that was the process we used. A lot of pre-planning and a, and a lot of innovation. We did a lot of testing. And then when things worked out well, we iterated. Thank you so much for sharing it. I think it just drives home the point that, you know, don't be afraid to try new things within your company and within your business. So I appreciate that insight, uh, Bob, for sure. 
I wanted to ask you, you know, about your relationship with, you know, Mr. Donut. Let's kind of talk about Mr. Donut a little bit. So, you know, you turn around the company and it's the 80s and Mr. Donut actually hires uh, a new CEO and, and you actually have an interesting relationship with them. You're playing tennis with them and stuff like that. Uh, kind of talk about Mr. Donut a little bit at this time and the new CEO and your relationship with them. Uh, one of my jobs uh, as a CEO of the business was to really stay close to my competitors for sure. So I was not only friendly with Dick Nelio, who was the president of Mr. Donut, who happened to live in the same town that I lived in, but also uh, Ron Joyce, who ran uh, Tim Horton donuts in Canada. Right. He, he and I became close friends and, and I served on the board of the national restaurant association to, uh, and the international franchise association to keep up with what was going on in the world uh, to ensure that we were, we were fresh. So, you know, basically, we developed a friendship, and uh, it was one of mutual respect, and and it was competitive, and um, that that was part of my uh, my, my mo. That was my method of operation. <laughs> gotcha. I I, I try to stay close uh, on a personal level. I wasn't trying to exploit the relationships, but I, right. and I think we got mutual satisfaction uh, from each of us in terms of it. You know, you're you're precluded by law from being able to do a lot of things. So it wasn't on that level, right. but it was merely one of making sure that we understood everything the competitor was doing and as close to the, uh, to the, to the line as we could f- to figure out. Gotcha. You know, I, I want to read a, a quote from the book really quickly because I, I, I want to ask you something after the fact. It, it says, quote, I think worry was part of our DNA, perhaps a part of every company's DNA. Uh, perhaps it's even a survival mechanism in itself, end quote. Uh, do you think being a warrior makes for a good entrepreneur, makes for a good, you know, CEO of, and a leader of a business? Within reason. Of course. Of course. Yeah, because, yes, I think being concerned and looking out into the future and evaluating the downside as well as the upside. Gotcha. Too rosy a scenario. I think optimism prevails. I think you have to be aspirational to lead a business and you really have to be, I think, an optimist. It's hard to be a pessimist and lead people. I don't think you'll lead them very far. So that's the way I'm naturally thrown. I'm thrown that way. And I'm also thrown to be collaborative and, and collegial. And, and, but one of the problems I had is that I moved oftentimes quickly mm. and it really required a team to hold me back. Sometimes I, 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 you know, for example, I'll give you a good example. Sure. Um, uh, back in the seventies, I guess, uh, Morton's, uh, was a frozen food manufacturer. And they came out with a, a jelly donut and a, and a honey dip donut, and they froze them. And they sold them in the freezer uh, of every supermarket, and it was a huge, huge success. Mm. It was the best. It was voted the best new product in the packaged goods category, the frozen food packaged goods category, in in a decade. And as a result of that, I worried that that was going to take away our donut business. And and fundamentally, what I did uh, was buy a factory. And Huston, Delaware, a former, I think it was a dough plant that, that, that and I built a, a freezing plant. Gotcha. Well, lo and behold, as it turned out, the Morton Donuts was a fad, not a trend. Mm. And there's a huge difference between the two. Right. And that happened to me three or four times where I moved very quickly in response. The worry part of me took over and we jumped before we had to. Uh, luckily, these were never issues that were so large that we could not achieve our objectives and still experiment. These were the experiments that we tried and we, we cut off. I did the same thing when Marie Callender opened pie shops in California. I'd go out there to, to look at, oh, my God, we have to have pies. It's the absolute natural for us. 
Well, as it turned out, by the time we got enough pies frozen, our pies are no better than Mrs. Smith's. We'd spent money with consultants. And as it turned out, the pie business was a better supermarket product than it was a, a restaurant product in, in terms of, and it was another f- false lead. So we had a lot of those and that was driven a lot by, I'd have to say my own uh, anxieties. Um, and and I, I had to slow myself down and my team had to to realize that that was an, an era for me and, and one of my characteristics that they'd have to hold me down a bit. And and I, I was open to that. You know, I, we all have strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. And I think you know, too quick, too quick to, to the trigger was probably one of my weaknesses. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to ask you about this. This may take us back a little bit, but uh, you, you talk about in the book uh, about how, you know, a lot of businesses, when you're talking about going from the first generation of the person who founded the business to the next generation, and then the generation after that, like, as you go down the generation, the likelihood of that business uh, being successful or, or remaining open for a while uh, decreased greatly, decreases greatly. Uh, so if there's somebody listening right now who's thinking about passing on their business to like their son or their nephew or their niece or whatever the case may be, you know, what are some of those lessons? What are some of those insights you would like to share with them when passing a business uh, down to like another generation? I, I have a, a bunch of things to say. About sure. That. And, and num- number one, uh, a family business, m- most businesses in the world, around the world are family businesses. Right. And, and, and it's a, a both a wonderful opportunity, a, a golden opportunity to have a, a family business to go into if you're a youngster. And particularly in today's day and age. Right. And that's a great gift, a great opportunity. It was for me. Uh, number two, but it's also can pose some very unique challenges. The other thing I would say is that the founder, the person who created the business, right. uh, should always be honored. Uh, if it weren't for them, there'd be no business at all. And that deserves to be honored. That said, though, however, you find that because the world is changing all the time, because the competition, the technology and the competitors are and the customer, everybody, everything is changing constantly. Right. The business has to change. And there is where the rub can often come. You basically find that, uh, um, that the, the, moving that on to the next generation to adapt the business, like in my case, mm-hmm. the strategy changed, the organization changed, even the name of the company itself changed right. from one generation to another. And, and that, that can be hard on a founder. Uh, in terms of uh, change, there was a movie made uh, that really tells this story elegantly uh, in many ways, and it's got many dimensions. Called the founder, it's about mm-hmm. the founding of McDonald's. Right. It was the McDonald brothers who really were the geniuses that created this Ford production line system of providing sandwiches inexpensively, quickly, not to order, but on bank. That was a, a stroke of genius. They opened two restaurants in San Bernardino, California. Mm-hmm. It was Ray Kroc, who was a multi-mixer salesman, who was able to see the opportunity that provided. There are other issues. Uh, some some founders basically see success and measure success as if the business is passed on from generation to generation. But yet, because of family issues, less than a third make it to the second generation, and less than 12% make it to the third. Right. Because there are a lot of friction points between family members, between compensation. And in some cases, a founder who find, founds the business, because he thinks he found it, thinks he's entitled to all of the rewards and not willing to share those with other people. So there are all kinds of ways and impediments that can 
disrupt the transition from generation to generation. Luckily today, there are there are firms and consulting firms that deal in nothing but how to help family businesses bridge those gaps and those tension points that get created, both how to change the business from one generation to another equitably, fairly, smoothly, how to, how to do better sharing between family members and family members who are also part of management, and, and also to help founders that are having trouble uh, sharing. So those are some of the bigger issues that I would uh, tip off uh, people considering joining a family business or those people who own a family business and thinking of you know, bringing their children into the business. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. And, and speaking of that regard, you know, kind of going back to your dad a, a little bit, you know, when he taps you to uh, run the company at 25 fresh out of business school, you know, and, and one could say like, you know, he's a son. It makes sense. This, any other, but like it, it, it really does kind of show that like he respected your business acumen. He respected, you know, what you could do uh, with the company. If, if, if left in your hands, kind of talk about, you know, the immense respect, that emotion, that immense respect that he must have had for you uh, outside of familial, but just from a business standpoint that he had that trust in you. Well, he, he, he did. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure it was so much trust. He ran out of options. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that, that among all the options, I was, I was the best of a poor set of options. I might, I might, I might be, but, gotcha. but in any event, I mean, he, he was able to observe me over time. I, uh, as a kid growing up, I adored my dad and, uh, right. and basically, uh, you know, it was his motivation that, that motivated me and he had seen me, uh, in college and, and assume leadership roles and then in the military assume leadership roles. So he had watched me progress wherever I was. I sort of aspired to lead and, and he paid attention and he was, he was watching me and guiding me all the way through my early years. Gotcha. As time went on, you know, basically uh, I had to change the business in very dramatic ways. And, and that's a different story. Of course. <laughs> Of course. And, and you talk about that in the book, you know, in 1983, there's kind of a demographic shift, you know, when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, women in the workplace and stuff like that. And even now, you know, in, in 2020, we're, we're seeing a kind of shift uh, with fast casual and, and you no know, diners and stuff like that. Kind of give your commentary on the state of, you know, kind of the, your industry, if you will, from your in your in your kind of commentary, if you don't mind. Yeah, basically, uh, I'm, I'll talk about what they call the QSR industry, which is called quick service restaurants. Sure, absolutely. In my experience, uh, I'd say a couple of things. No, n- number one, it was always driven by two factors, mm. uh, convenience and value. And gotcha. Value is a lot more than price. It could be brand. It could be location. It could be packaging. It could be quality of product. It could be pricing. It could be a number of factors. But that's what always drove the business, uh, convenience and value. and I also watched the industry go through three distinct phases. The first phase started after the Second World War with the the move to the suburbs and the the automobile culture. And it was basically started by operators, people who conceived of a new way, a new product, new purpose that filled a consumer need for women entering the workforce. We had gone from the Second World War where one out of three women worked outside the home to as much as two out of three by the year 2000. That trend really drove the, the, the QSR industry. Right. So the first phase was operational, good, strong operation. Second phase were those people that kept all that operational competence and grafted onto it first-rate 
marketing experience, packaged goods marketing experience with product managers, pricing, advertising, all of the ways to touch mass media, to you know, public relations, all the ways to touch the consumer. Now we come along to the third phase. Those people that are going to emerge on top, in my view, are those that not only have kept the strong operations, grafted on this first great packaged goods marketing know-how and competence, but have now adopted and are leaders in technology, the whole digitization, consumer relationship marketing, the ability to be able to touch your consumer through their iPhone, to know what they ordered, for them to be able to order ahead, for them to be able to pick up, for them to be able to pay in advance, anything to enhance convenience and that adds value. And, and, and my view, the pandemic will pass right. and people have already started. The bigger chains have already started to move and master both digitization and the digital age and technology and, and uh, the, the other things I spoke of. And I think when the pandemic is, pandemic is over and it will be over, right. I think they'll emerge stronger and more able than ever before. Uh, unfortunately, I think it will come at the hands of and at the expense of independents who don't have the ability to be able to provide that kind of investments in technology because it does require brains and, and equipment and investment to do that. And I, I think the large will get larger. I think companies like Duncan will flourish in the years ahead. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Once again, Startup Nation, we're actually wrapping up with Robert Rosenberg, author of Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running uh, Dunkin' Donuts. I want to ask this question, but I want to kind of preface it with a quick story uh, really quickly. My introduction uh, to Dunkin' Donuts was like in the early 90s. It actually wasn't like a donut or anything. It was actually a breakfast sandwich. Uh, my mom was trying to convince me to uh, go go inside and, and get a breakfast sandwich. Like, man, I don't want a breakfast sandwich from a donut place. But it was, actually ended up uh, being really good and, and quite affordable because me and my mom, we didn't didn't grow up, you know, uh, you know, in the best of circumstances, grew up in Lamar Terrace projects in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, for, for one thing, it was very affordable to afford that breakfast sandwich. But the, you know, the boost that I would get after eating a breakfast sandwich was just so immense. Like I found myself having a better day uh, at school, having better grades that day at school and stuff like that. So I, I prefaced with this, the, my question with that story to ask you this, you know, when you think about Duncan and the legacy that you've built, you know, it's one thing to build a great company, but you, 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 you know, but to have a brand and built a company that allows people to have stories like mine, where it's like, you know, we, 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 you know, business deals have been made in a Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, people have had family memories uh, in a Dunkin' Donuts. What does all that mean to you? No, it's, it's immeasurable. You know, basically, it's the whole reason for business. And the reason that Dunkin' is about to celebrate its 70th anniversary as a right. company. You know, few businesses ever be that long life. You basically, in order to do that, you have to fill a purpose in people's lives, both memories as well as products. You know, people have certain biorhythms during the course of the day where they need energy. They need a pick me up. You know, it could be first thing in the morning. It could be uh, you know, break during the mid mid morning break. It could right. be a snack around midday. It could be an afternoon snack. It could be a late evening snack. All of those meal occasions, I think, are you know, part of people's biorhythms. It's a need people have. And if you can satisfy that need better than the competition, if you can do it with convenience and value, and a brand is a value, and I can go into that in some detail if you want, but Absolutely. all of that, all of that exists. And, and um, when it, when it does exist, it, it, 
it, it, it allows for longevity. And if you're involved either as a franchise owner or as a member of management that spends your life engaged in that activity, you know, there, there is a great reward. You know, people might say, well, it's just, you know, it's just coffee and donuts. Or it's coffee and donuts and a, and a breakfast sandwich. But it really is. It really is uh, a way to, to, to serve a useful purpose in people's lives. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. You can't do it through advertising. You've got to really be there offering something people find of value. Hey, Startup Nation. So today's content ran a bit over, and I don't want to get in trouble with my radio partners. So go to the startuplifepodcast.com and catch the bonus content from today's episode. Trust me, you don't want to miss it.